Section 3 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 2. Progress of the Reformation in England under Edward VI, 1547 to 1553, Part 1. The Emperor is aiming at the sovereignty of Europe, which he cannot obtain without the suppression of the Reformed religion, and unless he crushes the English nation, he cannot crush the Reformation. This remark of Sir William Cecil may serve to explain the position in which first the Emperor Charles V, and afterwards his son Philip II, King of Spain, stood toward England. Their schemes for political supremacy were founded upon the old idea of European politics, which regarded Europe as a confederacy of nations under the headship of Pope and Emperor. England was the first nation which, as a nation, broke away from this state of things. It was of the greatest importance to the House of Austria and Spain that this rebellion should not be made good. The movement against the papacy had been of long standing in England. The English Church had never submitted unreservedly to papal control, and papal encroachments had been guarded against especially in the reigns of Edward I and Edward III by stringent laws. At a time when general discontent with the papacy prevailed in Europe, particular cause for discontent was given to Henry VIII. As the royal power was then at its greatest height in England, Parliament transferred to the king the title of supreme head of the Church of England, and abolished all the rights over the Church in England which the Pope at that time claimed. This abolition of the Pope's power was all that Henry VIII, and perhaps a majority of the English people, meant at first by the measures taken in his reign. Henry's plan was to maintain the Church discipline and doctrines unchanged, but to maintain them without the authority of the Pope. As time went on, it became clear that this was impossible. The men of the new learning continued to apply to religious matters the tests of reason or of primitive custom, and much of the existing system was beginning to crumble away before them. Many on seeing this became alarmed and asked themselves the question, where is this to stop? Afraid of the risk attending further inquiry, they went back to the old papal system, as being surer than the novelties they heard on every side. They went back again to their old convictions, determined to meddle no more with change, but henceforth to fight the battle of the Pope. So, too, with the common people. They seemed at first to have been willing enough to have the Pope set aside, but in the dissolution of the monasteries and its results, they soon began to see and feel what the royal headship of the Church might mean. Many who had seen with joy the monasteries fall soon felt that their joy had been without cause. The monastery lands had passed to harder masters. The taxes which they had fondly hoped they never would have to pay again were soon levied as if the royal coffers were no better filled than before. Many felt a great want in the associations of their daily life when they looked at the ruined piles with which so much that was solemn in their own lives had been connected. A large party, certainly the majority of the people, wished the old state of things quietly back again. Against these were set a party of earnest men, thoroughly convinced of the badness of all that had gone on before, 
and wishing only to carry the changes further so as to uproot everything that might still tend to keep the old errors alive. So long as Henry VIII reigned, the more violent members of these two parties were kept down, and Henry forced his own position, the old church system without a pope, upon all alike. He seems, however, to have moved on in his later days in the direction of further reforms, and he was inclined still more toward the party of the new learning by the violent conduct of the Earl of Surrey, which brought suspicion on his father also, the Duke of Norfolk, who was at the head of the papal party. When Henry died on January 28, 1547, he appointed by his will a council of sixteen members who were to manage affairs during the minority of his young son, Edward VI. Amongst the members of the council, there was a majority of the men of the new learning, and the future movement of the Reformation in England depended upon the way in which they would act. The council seems to have felt the difficulty of its position. In the unsettled state of affairs, it was necessary that the will of one man should guide the state. The council therefore appointed one of their number, Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford, protector of the realm. He was made Duke of Somerset, in accordance, it was said, with the late king's wish. As being Edward VI's uncle, he was likely to maintain his interests. The Duke of Somerset was the head of the Protestant party, and soon made known his intention of carrying out the Reformation as far as he could. In this he was aided by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, whose opinions during the later years of Henry VIII had been slowly forming themselves after the model of the German reformers. A series of measures were at once carried out which made England a Protestant nation in matters of doctrine as well as in church government. First, a royal visitation of the whole kingdom was held. Commissioners were sent into every diocese to see that the church services were properly conducted. A book of homilies, composed by Cranmer, was given to the clergy to be read in the churches, and also a copy of Erasmus's paraphrase of the New Testament. The services were made simpler and more uniform by the publication of the Book of Common Prayer. This, which is now known as the First Prayer Book of Edward VI, was compiled by Cranmer out of the old service books with a few changes. It has since undergone a few alterations and received a few additions, especially in 1662, but Cranmer's prayer book is in the main the same as that which is used by the Church of England at the present day. The fact that it is still looked upon with such affection and reverence after three centuries is the best proof that can be given of Cranmer's moderation and wisdom. On every side there were signs of the fall of the old system. Archbishop Cranmer ate meat openly in Lent. Images were pulled down in the churches. An act of Parliament was passed, allowing the marriage of the clergy. The object of the new system was to recognize scripture and not tradition as the basis of men's belief. These measures met with the approval of a majority of thinking men in England. They were popular in London and in the larger towns, but in the country generally they were accepted without being approved of. There was a smoldering discontent on every side. It was only by a successful government in other respects that Somerset was likely to put his religious measures upon a secure footing. 
Let us see, then, how far his other plan succeeded. The first point to which he turned his attention was a union between Scotland and England. Henry VII and Henry VIII had both labored for this object, for they saw that England could never hold an independent position in Europe, so long as Scotland was an enemy always on the watch to take advantage of her momentary weakness. James V of Scotland had died in 1542, leaving an infant daughter Mary as heir to the Scottish throne. Henry VIII had endeavored to bring about a marriage between Mary and his son Edward, and this policy was pursued by Somerset. First he tried negotiations, and when these failed, he advanced with an army into Scotland. The Scots were defeated with great loss at the Battle of Pinky Cluth, not far from Edinburgh, on September 10, 1547. Somerset, however, had not time to follow up his victory. His presence was wanted in England, and he hastily left Scotland without having accomplished his object. By this expedition Somerset obtained for the time great military glory in England, but he increased the taxes of the people who could ill endure to be taxed further. He also sowed so deep hatred in the heart of the Scots that they now threw themselves without reserve into the arms of France, their old ally. The Scottish lords determined to bind France firmly to Scotland by the marriage of their young queen with the Dauphin. Mary was sent to France in August 1548 to be educated till she was old enough for marriage. All hope of an alliance between England and Scotland was now at an end, and Somerset's endeavors to bring it about had only succeeded in making it impossible. Moreover, Scotland, by its alliance with France, had pledged itself to Catholicism, and Protestantism would meet from it with bitter opposition. In this point, then, Somerset had failed, but still greater difficulties soon beset him at home. He had inherited from the last reign great financial troubles. The country was in debt in spite of all the confiscations of ecclesiastical property, and the coinage had been depreciated in value as a means of enabling the government to pay off its debts. This policy, however, had produced very disastrous results in the unsettled state of the country generally. The depreciation of the currency at once increased prices. This made little difference to the merchant or trader who paid a higher price for what he bought and got a higher price for what he sold. But the changes which were coming about in methods of cultivation, owing to the large amount of land which had suddenly changed hands after the dissolution of the monasteries, prevented a proportionate increase in the wages of the laborers. Large estates were now brought together into the hands of one landlord, and it was soon found that large farms were more profitable when used for grazing than when used for growing corn. English wool could be sold to Flanders for a high price, and so large sheep farms became the chief agricultural industry of England. This change was bad for the laborers in many ways. Grazing farms to be profitable must be large while corn may be grown and give a small profit on small estates. The growth of large sheep farms tended to diminish the number of small tillage farms, and so of small farmers throughout the land. Again, large grazing farms require quiet and solitude, 
and villages were pulled down to make the district better suited for the purpose. Grazing farms also require fewer laborers than tillage farms, and many men were thrown out of employment, and so the rate of wages was kept low. Nor was this all. The monasteries had been indulgent landowners and had never pressed their rights to the utmost. The new landowners, however, were far different. They enclosed all the waste land and common land which they could, and so deprived many families of their only livelihood. We cannot then be surprised that the poor were discontented with the government and connected their present misery with the religious change. The monasteries had gone, but the people were worse off than before. They wished that the old state of things were back again. This feeling led in the summer of 1549 to risings of the peasants in many of the counties, which were easily checked at first. They, however, alarmed Somerset, who saw the evil of which the peasants complained and did not wish to have the lower classes opposed to Protestantism. He therefore appointed commissioners to inquire into their grievances and to remove the enclosures of the commons. This angered the gentry, who were the owners of the land, and encouraged the peasants to take into their own hands the redress of their wrongs. The insurrection broke out again in a more serious form, particularly in Norfolk under the leadership of Robert Kett. The insurgents became very formidable and were only put down after a severe struggle by the Earl of Warwick, whose forces were largely composed of German mercenaries. End of Section 3